So please join with me in Ruth chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you showed me earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of notable character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you, Cheryl. And welcome to you all. Expectations. Expectations can weigh heavy. Like what we expect for ourselves, or what others expect of us, or, or often what we expect for our future ourselves. You, you know, the I'm going to own a home by the time I'm 23, pay it off by the time I'm 33, retire at 40, have four kids who actually listen to me, and spend the rest of my days traveling and writing books, that sort of thing. And, and those sorts of expectations will mess with our heads if those things don't come to be, if that's how you're expecting life. Now, one common approach to that is this, you know, be free of expectations and you'll be free of disappointments, right? Like that's kind of the stoic approach you might say. Like if you don't want to feel disappointed, just don't have any expectations. And, and though that probably is true to some extent, 
I don't think it lines up very well with our humanity or even our experience of real life. Like God creates us as humans in his own image. And and that means a task. It's a task of cultivating the earth, of developing cultures. It's a task of naming and relating. And, And this task then is full of potential. It's full of creativity and dreams and hopes for the future. So in a word, it's, it's full of desires. And that's a part of our God-given wiring you're not going to do without some form of expectation. Now, of course, there are inappropriate, even crushing expectations that we can place on ourselves or that we can pray, place on other people or what we think is, is possible in life. And that's, that's true, of course. But Naomi, as we just heard in this story, she's not wrong to want for Ruth some kind of future. And she's surely not wrong for making plans, even risky ones, toward that end. For ultimately, as we find, these plans will be a part of the fullness of God's plan, his big story. But we'll also see how expectations need to be shifted. Others need to be just changed entirely. Others completely challenged. So let's see how today. Uh, If you're new or a guest, my name is Dave. I'm our our lead pastor here. Welcome to those who are joining us online. And and just before I pray as well, as as we begin today, um, I just want to say that um, you you might have seen, if you get the regular emails, that we have hired Gerald Harder as our next pastor of 60-plus ministry and, and worship ministries, and so we're grateful to invite him onto our staff team, but he's actually in Mexico with his family because that was a trip they had planned, and so lucky guy, but, uh, but we're grateful to be welcoming him in a, in a new context, a new role for him. Let's pray as we begin. God, we are thankful for this text, for this story, and for the ways that it, it challenges us, and we pray, Father, that we'd be wide open to hear what this text invites us into. So, Lord, we we come expectant. Holy Spirit, speak. We're here to listen. Amen. Now, if you're you're just joining us, uh, we're going through the book of Ruth, and that story begins with a woman named Naomi. Her husband and, and two sons move from Bethlehem to Moab because they ran out of bread. There was a famine. And in that process, she ends up losing her husband and both of her boys. And so she returns to Bethlehem, destitute, desperate, but with this really faithful, loving daughter-in-law kind of in tow that won't leave her alone. That is Ruth, the namesake of this book. Uh, And last week we saw in Ruth chapter 2 that that she takes the initiative to go and find food for her and Naomi. She expresses this loyal love through taking initiative in this way. For Naomi, as, as Ricky pointed out last week, uh, she's just in this space of despair. She's, she's grieving, and it's like she just can't get herself off the couch at this point. And, and it's true. There's times where when grief is fresh like that, where you're just in the midst of the brokenness, we just need this place to, like, sit down, embrace the pain, be present to the reality of the hurt, where we really can't do a whole lot. Everything else seems difficult. Even hope seems like it's completely lost. It's hard to get off the couch. That's where Naomi is at the beginning of chapter 2. But then there will be a time when our eyes do shift from grieving what was to embracing 
what will be, shift from behind us to what's in front of us. Now, this isn't forgetting the people that we've lost, not at all, but it is a moment of looking up again, of re-engaging the horizon as it rises in front of us, even as we now maybe walk with more of a limp. And so near the end of chapter 2, Ruth tells Naomi that she's been gleaning in the field of a guy named Boaz, and then the lights begin to come on for Naomi, and hope begins to dawn again. She, she turns a corner. Just listen to her response here. She says, the Lord bless him. Now, the, the NIV editors, you've got to know there's no, there's no um, punctuation at all in the original Hebrew or the original Greek languages. There's, it's not there. So the editors have to make decisions about how to punctuate, and I think they get it right. They put an exclamation mark here. The Lord bless him. Naomi is speaking of his constant and consistent kindness. She uses that word chesed that we talked about, which means loyal love. Boaz is showing loyal love. She says, to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, guardian redeemer, if you're not familiar with the Bible, even if you are, you might say, what quite is that? Well, um, the, the ancient law code of the people of Israel had made um, some provisions for if someone was going through a really difficult time, maybe they lost some land, they forfeited it somehow, or maybe they had even sold themselves into slavery just to survive the next few years, then a, a close relative was really responsible to help bail them out. They had this kind of responsibility, but this is important. Even though they had a responsibility to care for close relatives, they weren't obligated to. There was no law that said you have to do this. And yet, Boaz, he's this person who could marry and therefore give back to Naomi and to Ruth what they had lost. And now, with this possibility in mind, a glimmer of hope begins to glint in Naomi's eyes, and she begins to make a plan, and this plan is, well, it's actually kind of forward. (laughs) Um, In the Hebrew language and culture, this description of how Ruth meets with Boaz includes a lot of at least what could look like really suggestive language. A bit of wink-wink, nudge-nudge, say no more. Um, See, when, when Naomi tells Ruth to wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, and then go uncover his feet and lay with him, he'll tell you what to do. Like, wh- what exactly is, is she telling him her to, to do at this point? And so there's been this looming question, and scholars have wrestled with what exactly is happening at this threshing room floor. Like, maybe it's not so PG. Maybe not. And you might think, well, that must be a recent development in scholarship. And actually, that's not the case. Um, Ephraim of Syria was a, like, a, like a pastor, writer, commentator in the, in the 300s. And, and, and he basically says, well, they have intercourse right there on the threshing room floor. Question, is that true? Is that what we're reading here? Answer, probably not. No, I don't think so. But here's why, and why it matters. Um, see, Ruth goes through with this plan, and when, when Boaz notices this woman at his feet, he asks, who are you? And Ruth answers like this, I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Do you see what she's saying here? 
Ruth is proposing. She's saying to Boaz, will you marry me? Uh, scholar Joyce Baldwin, she says, spreading the cloak over, that was a vivid expression for providing protection, warmth, and fellowship. The phrase spoke eloquently of marriage. And so Boaz immediately puts her mind at ease. She's taking a huge risk here. And, and he has this joyful response. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And by saying my daughter, he says, you're not an outsider anymore. Yes, you're from Moab. You're a foreigner. But you know what? You are a part of the family. You belong. Yes, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. This is not what Boaz was expecting. He didn't think this is what was coming. And it also tells us, this text, that Boaz is probably a little bit older, probably maybe my age, maybe just a little bit older than me, mid-40s perhaps, um, and likely a, widow, a widower as well. For women and men, for that matter, barely made it out of their 40s quite often in this culture. They would often die young. I mean, I would have died at 17 when my appendix was, was rupturing, right? So without those medical interventions, people died young in those cultures. So it's probably my age, maybe a little older. But he says, look, you didn't, you didn't go after the younger men. This is beautiful. He goes on to say this, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And so she stays there until before the sun rises, gets up and is in, sent back to Naomi, but not empty-handed. We read that Boaz pours these like six measures of grain into her shawl, and it says he has to like help her load it up. I don't, scholars don't really know how much this is, but it's a large amount. It is kind. Um, some have actually seen this as another like hint, wink, nudge, that she's not just leaving with grain, but has a bun in the oven in another respect. Let's look at that more closely. Yeah, could be. I don't think so. The last chapter of Proverbs speaks of a woman of noble character, which is interesting because in this text, Boaz literally just calls her the same phrase exactly. You are, people know you are a woman of noble character. The book of Proverbs, as well as actually the whole witness of Scripture, is unified on what that means. Um, the Proverbs talk about what a woman of noble character is and what a woman who is not of noble character is like, that she's the kind who seeks to seduce and to mess around with someone who's not her husband. Ruth's perfume, her best clothes, I think is putting her best foot forward. She's not trying to seduce Boaz in this scene. Now, it's true, they do break a lot of expectations at this point. Ruth proposes marriage. That's not normal in that culture. Boaz agrees to marry a Moabite woman. Again, that is way outside of expected norms in that moment. But morally speaking, they continue to be models of faithfulness to God. Boaz rightly calls Ruth a woman of noble character, and this scene doesn't change that assessment. But more, the text tells us something else. In chapter 4, we read this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son, Ruth 4.13. So when does he make love to her? When they're married, when she becomes his wife. And God blesses them with a child, miraculously it seems. She wasn't able to have a child um, with, 
when she was married to Naomi's son. But the question now is, like, why does this even matter? A few things. Number one, this story prepares us to hear another story that also sounds a bit scandalous. As God enables Ruth to conceive a son in what it speaks of is quite miraculously, so God enables Mary to conceive a son in a completely miraculous way. No earthly father involved at all. And the unexpected nature of Ruth's proposal to Boaz, this is a Moabite woman asking an Israelite man to marry her, so too the story of Mary and Joseph is riddled with what from the outside looks full of suspicion. Like Joseph knows that Mary must have been messing around with someone else because babies come from somewhere, right kids? Yes, you, you know enough, I know. There's grade six and seven kids. They come from somewhere. And so Joseph plans to end that engagement, but he's a good man, the text tells us. So rather than doing it as a public shaming, he decides to do it quietly. And as he begins to prepare that, an angel of the Lord shows up and says, no, actually, Joseph, this is quite unexpected, but this is actually something that God alone has done. And so this text enables us to hear that God often works in the completely unexpected places. Of course, the, Mary, the baby Mary carries is a total miracle. There's no other guy involved. And, and so now Boaz, in this story, Boaz is a picture, a biblical precedent for Joseph to roll with what seems like a very suspicious, unexpected nature of what he and Mary are going through as well. He can look at Boaz and say, okay, this guy also had a strange situation. A Moabite woman asks him to marry him, and he says yes. And maybe this is, because this is how God brings about King David, maybe God is really at work in our story too. Now, here's where this might connect with us. Ruth proposes. A woman in the ancient setting makes the first moves, and they are intentional and well-designed. This is totally out of left field for Boaz, and yet he rolls with it. And neither Ruth nor Boaz is reprimanded for this. Now, there may be cultural stereotypes that, um, you know, we feel constrained by. There might be traditions that we feel like, oh, we can't step outside of those, but they have nothing to do with what God says. They're not morally wrong. In fact, these might be the places where God specifically designs to show up. Boaz is not presented, and this is important, Boaz is not presented as less of a man for answering and being on the answering end of Ruth's proposal. Nor is Ruth described as being not feminine enough because she's bold. Ruth is bold. She's courageous. She and Naomi put together a plan. They take initiative. These are not distinctly masculine traits, and that's important to say. These are godly traits. These are things that all of God's people are to live out and live with. Now, there are important differences between men and women. That's true, of course, but this isn't one of them. Ruth and Naomi are unknowingly participating in God's larger plans through bold initiative. And now, there, there might be cultural norms. There might be stereotypes that are holding you and I back from participating with God's big plans. I, I, I thought of this one this week. Like, being Canadian means that we might feel particularly like we're not allowed to speak about faith 
publicly. We're not allowed to claim to know things about Jesus, about spiritual reality, as though they are true, and therefore other things are not true. That seems to be like a, like a cultural no-no for us, to just claim to have the truth about spiritual reality. But what if others need to know it? What if they need to consider it for themselves, that this is actually true, and they need to embrace it? One of our staff this week, as we read this story in staff meeting, uh, she said, I, I want to be more like Ruth. And, and she drew the lines to that very Canadian thing. She said, I want to be more bold in just having conversations about my faith in the way I connect with, you know, other, other people at school. And this is at public school where her kids go. I want to be inviting people to, 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 to know God and maybe even to come to a church event. And, and I just thought, me too. Like, that's, I, I want to be like Ruth here. And, and so that's maybe our first really big takeaway is that Ruth is a model of boldness and courage for us to emulate. Here's the other thing. Uh, Boaz and Ruth remain an example of people of integrity. They not only demonstrate steadfast, loyal love to each other, which they do, they demonstrate that to God. They're doing what God has asked of them. And I know, the conventional wisdom in our day and age uh, says that dating relationships, you know, if you're interested in that person, you've got to try it before you buy it. That's the conventional wisdom of our day. But this story, if you were wondering, it doesn't support that idea, just in case you thought it might. Um, And by the way, there are a number of big problems with that approach. Uh, The so-called wisdom, like practically speaking, it just doesn't work. Every single study that's been done on couples who cohabitate, who live like they're married versus those who don't, um, live like they're married before they're married, and then they get married, Every single study, no matter where it comes from, shows the same thing. 81 to 90% of those are the ones that end in divorce. Deep sense of marital unfaith, uh, of marital um, dissatisfaction. That's where the most of the marital breakdown happens if you just simply look at the numbers and run them. Every single time it says that. So just practically speaking, it is not good to live outside the bounds of God's design for human sexuality. Even if you weren't a Christian, even if you were just like, hey, I'm totally secular, but I want to live the best way possible, line yourself up with what God teaches in the scriptures, and you will find the most satisfaction in how you relate to other people. I think Boaz and Ruth continue to model integrity in this text. But please hear this. Please hear this. There is grace for all of us. God works with the messy, messed up, messed around, and those who have messed around people. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be working with me or anyone, actually. (laughs) Again, God can and regularly does work with and even sometimes through human disobedience. That's true. But that's not to say that God blesses or approves of when we step outside his will and his ways. He just doesn't. But there is forgiveness. There is fresh starts. That's actually like God's thing. That's his thing. And we all need forgiveness, and we need it regularly. I need forgiveness, and I need it regularly. Confession is a regular part of the rhythm of the Christian life. Jesus tells us that when we pray daily, we're also saying, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a daily part of the Christian life. So no matter what your past, God can redeem it. He can take what's broken and bring beauty from it. 
And now I know if you're just exploring Christian faith, um, this all might sound a bit bizarre to you. <laughs> I, can, I can understand that. It might sound a little bit out of date, especially the part about, you know, when, when there's almost an expectation in our culture that to be dating somebody means to be sleeping with them. I would invite you, though, to consider that if God made us, God would know how life works best. And the greatest freedom comes not from having no limits, which if you think about it is impossible, but having the right limits, having the God-given limits that line up with our God-given design. So this is an area where Christians will obviously and markedly be distinct from the world. We are going to stand outside of the world's expectations. We just will. But we also, in doing that, can offer, can hold out something beautiful and different to a world that experiences a lot of chaos and disorder when it comes to sexuality. By making a choice to follow Jesus, this will stand as an alternate and beautiful offering to the rest of the world. Here's the last thing we need to see. One of the key themes of the story of Naomi's experience is, is this, this, this movement between fullness and emptiness, right? Like in the, in the first scene, Naomi is pictured as destitute. She's got her arms and they're just empty. Here's what we read in 1.5. It says, Naomi was left without her two sons, or more literally, without her two boys and her husband. When Naomi returns to Bethlehem, she says, I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Man, empty is a heavy word. That's a hard word. But here and at the, at the end of the scene, when Ruth gets back from the threshing floor, Naomi asks her, how did it go, my daughter? She's excited again, right? Ruth tells her the story, and then she adds, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Not empty-handed. Boaz, in his generosity, in his kindness, is again filling full the story that moves from empty to full. I picture Ruth showing up with this weighty shawl full of grain. Of grain. Again, we don't know how much it really was, but it's a lot, and it contributes to the sense of fullness in the scene. I can see Ruth passing it on to Naomi, and Naomi stumbling under the weight of this, of this big bundle of grain. Naomi, who left Bethlehem, which if you remember scene one, chapter one, we talked about how Bethlehem is, is literally in the Hebrew, it's two words, Bethlehem, means house of bread. She left the house of bread because there was no more bread. And now she has her arms full of would-be bread loading her down. And this fullness of grain in her arms is suggestive too. It won't be much longer, maybe a little more than nine months, and Naomi's arms will be full of another sort of bundle, a weightiness that outweighs all of that grain. For at the end of chapter 4, we read, when then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him, the women living there said, Naomi has a son. This is not how Naomi envisioned her life going. It's not. Some of you can relate to that. Sometimes things in your life will not work out the way you expected or envisioned. Again, chapter 1, Naomi says, if I thought there was still hope for me, she's, she literally says, there's no hope for me. I am hopeless. She can't envision anything except her loss. That's all she can see in front of her at that point. And, and you might be in one of those, this is not how I envision my life going, spaces right now. But the women of the town aren't wrong. 
Naomi does have her arms filled again. No, these aren't the boys she lost. No, she knows that, and that's fair enough. But God is at work doing something so much bigger than Naomi can imagine, and it's precisely through this. This is not how I imagined life. And Naomi, she does open her arms again. She moves from call me Mara, which means bitter, because I'm just full of bitterness. She moves from that, and then she opens up her arms to receive something new. I I recently ran into um, an old friend. I hadn't seen her for quite some time, and she and her husband have wrestled, well, with with that inability to have children of their own. And I had many conversations with them, and this was so, so, so hard, especially for her. She envisioned her life full of her own children, her home just full of them, and they're not there. And I ran into her this week, and she introduced me to her four-year-old child, five-year-old child, pardon me. Uh, They're in the final stages of the adoption process, and their arms are full. That's not a way that she expected. Like Naomi, they are coming to see that God would fill their arms, but more than that, too, they're, they're, they're also providing their arms for a little one who needed to be loved. Naomi, when she opens up her heart and arms this little boy, she signals the pattern of life that Christians would come to adopt. And that pun is fully intended. Um, For Jesus, the one who is directly descended from this very unconventional story, this very coincidental set of circumstances, Jesus gives the world a kind of hope they had never imagined before. See, with Jesus' resurrection, he opens up a whole new way to see the world. In ancient cultures, and many traditional cultures still today, the way to have a future was by having children. They are the way that you go on. (laughs) They are your security in old age. But what if you can't have kids? You're just out of luck. But then Jesus begins his ministry, and he's single. And he stays that way. And he's not having children. And within the ancient Jewish culture, you have to understand, Jesus would basically be seen as sinning to not get married and have children at this point. Like, he was seen as off the rails for making this decision to remain single and celibate and not having children. What is he doing? One of the things he's doing is this. For those in this ancient culture, he's giving value and worth to those who are single or those, for whatever reason, cannot or aren't going to have children of their own. Because Jesus was raised from the grave, he's able to say, your future is not tied to physical descendants. Your security doesn't come from kids. You are a part of a whole new family, the family of God, and that comes through faith and through God's grace at work in your life. Like one day, Jesus is teaching uh, in a home, it sounds like, and then, and then there's this knock on the door, and, and they yell inside. They say, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are looking for you. They think he's off the rails because it seems like it for his culture. He's just wandering around teaching. And they said, they want you to come out and chat to him. (laughs) And and here's, here's what he says. He says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what he's saying here? Jesus is recasting how family works, how kinship works in the kingdom of God. The lines of our family are redrawn, not on physical descent, but on allegiance to God and doing God's will. So Jesus, for the first time, gives value 
to those who are single and celibate and not having kids. This is the beginning of some of the most significant social changes the world had ever seen. This is where orphanages come from. It's from people who begin to take those who had been exposed, they've been left at garbage dumps, kids that you didn't want, that's how you got rid of them. You just left them at the garbage dump to be exposed, and they would die there. And Christian people came along, scooped them up, and said, I'll raise them. The early Christians also began to refer to each other as brother and sister, and they meant it. They were taking Jesus in this, che- in this text in, in Mark 3 at his word, and so do we. When we look around the room, we see not a disjointed just group of families who happen to gather. This is the family. This is us. In Christ, we are adopted as God's own children, and then we adopt each other as brother and sister. And here's how this lands for us. To adopt Jesus' vision of, king, of kinship, of a new family, this will deeply challenge the, fiercely independent, or the fierce independence we've been enculturated into. This way of thinking invites us to build bigger tables, both metaphorically and maybe literally too. Like my grandma, even into her 80s, would make a meal and then invite a bunch of young adults to do a Bible study. Every week, she would, she would just create this like young adult study in her living room. She did that basically until she went into a nursing home. Uh, that was her life. This is us. <laughs> and she pictures, I think, what the church is to look like. The church is the place where a person, be them single or celibate, are totally whole. This is the place where all who want kids but don't have any now have an armload, actually. And this is important. You have to know 50% of adults in any church setting at any given time are single. 50% are. That means it's not normal to be married and have a bunch of kids. And that might be that they've never married or that they're married again or, or, pardon me, single again for any number of reasons, but that's just a reality that 50% of adults in any given church are not married, actually. And, I, and that matters to know, I think, because it matters in how we talk about and to and how we think about inviting people over to our homes, and I, I think that changes how we think about things. I also know this, because I have conversations with people, that couples who haven't had children for whatever reason can often feel like they just don't belong in churches, and that's a shame. For some, like my friends who are now adopting, coming to church for them when it was full of kids and they didn't have their own, it was just hard. So, like, do I have an answer to that? Well, I think it's that we we view everyone as family. I think that's the answer. I think Jesus' answer is the answer. That doesn't matter what your status is. There isn't a need to fit in and do the same thing. There is a need to belong. We make space for each other. So here's the question. Who is at your table? Maybe who needs an invite to it? And we become the build-a-bigger-table people because we've been invited, actually, to Jesus' table. There is an abundance of grain now in Naomi's arms, and there is an abundance of grace for us as well. And we share that with the world. Redemption doesn't mean that we always get back everything we lost in a one-to-one sense. No. But like redemption is in this story, it's knowing that God's hand is with Naomi, not against her. And there's something beautiful and beyond expectation with that. You'll notice as the musicians come forward, we're going to invite those who are serving at the table as well. And you'll notice that the elements are, well, they're at the front. And um, our leadership has been really eager to be able to serve communion again.
Uh, but we've been play, planning and, and, and thinking through and just waiting until, well, we were confident in our plans for a world that is still wearied from pandemic. That would include the necessary precautions. So the elements have been prepared by people with gloves on and they'll be served in that way too. Now, if you'd prefer to just take the prepackaged elements, just say so when you come and, and we'll pass those on to you. I'm also really happy that we're serving the elements in a way that we've occasionally done in the past, but it hasn't been our regular practice. This is outside of expectation, perhaps, for some of us. But what we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to invite you to just like to move from your seats and you'll come to the front and receive from one server the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the other the cup. And then you'll just stand to the side and take those, and then you can dispose of the cup. There's just a spot to do that at the time. And then you'll return to your seats kind of around from the side aisles. Now, if, if you're unable to walk to the front or for some reason don't feel comfortable with that, that's just fine. Um, this is all going to be kind of messy. We're trying something new, right? <laughs> but you can also ask maybe your neighbor if you can't come for some reason just to grab you and they'll grab you a prepackaged cup as well and they can bring that for you. Or just raise your hand and myself or Ricky will come and, and bring some for you. Now, this way of doing communion, this is how most Christians through most of church history have participated. There's something beautiful about moving physically, of coming to the table that Jesus has set for us, and then receiving the bread of life that we need. Jesus himself invites us to come and to come to him. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you to just to, on the main floor, uh, we'll start with the front rows, and you guys will come to the front in the middle aisle. So you'll come to the middle aisles, you'll come and receive the elements, take them, and then you'll go outside and back into your seats and then so on and so forth. Upstairs, um, you guys will go out, starting on these far ends in the top row, you guys will go out and you'll be served just in the hallway there, then you'll come back in through the doors. And those on the top row, you guys can kind of split in the middle there, this way and this way, just all the way through and to the end. It is going to be awkward at first. I understand that. And it's going to take us longer than we thought. Here we see Naomi had this bundle of grain in her arms, which suggested another bundle. The bundle of joy that she would soon have in her arms, who leads to the coming of Jesus. That's a part of that story. And now Boaz willingly took on this role of guardian redeemer. He wasn't under obligation to do it. He chose it. And this foreshadows the redeemer of the whole world. For Jesus chose to be our redeemer, to buy us back, everyone who trusts in him. He buys us back from the power of evil and sin and death itself and offers us forgiveness and life, even life eternal. We are adopted as his very own sons and daughters. We are accepted. And that's what this table means. It says he gives his body for us and so we receive it today. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you gave all of yourself to bring us back, to redeem us, so that we would be yours forever. And we ask, God, that you would make us the kind of people who then offer that grace to the world. For your glory and our joy, we pray it. 